Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, what is the two books metaphor in Christian history? We'll be discussing how God has revealed himself. And Ken, we all know you like books. And today we get to discuss not one, but two books. That's exactly right. Yeah, we get, uh, we're doubling our army here today. We're going to talk about two different books. Yeah. What do we mean by this metaphor? Well, if you go back into Christian history, and and I think it really even predates Christianity, I think you could go back, uh, for example, into Judaism, that uh, Jewish and Christian thinkers, Joe, thought of the natural world as being like a book. It's not exactly a book, but it is many ways like a book. And I, I think in many ways that kind of reflects this Jewish Christian idea that that God is the author of creation, as well as the Torah, uh, as well as the biblical revelation. And because of uh, who God is, his mind, his thoughts, his reflections, that the created order also kind of reflects, it has similarities to a book. So I want to talk a little bit about that, and I, I'd like to carry this over to another program where we look at some of the uh, quotations from uh, Christians through the centuries about this idea that nature is like a book. Wonderful. All right. Well, people who are perhaps new to this podcast or reasons to believe will benefit from it because this is one of those areas that comes up a lot. Uh, uh, how do we interpret uh, the Bible? Uh, what's the relationship between science and uh, you know the Word of God? All those kinds of things. So it's appropriate. Yeah, I think this is, this is really kind of bread and butter for reasons to believe. Um, you know, again, to kind of develop that idea of the two books metaphor, um, obviously, Scripture is a literal book. Um, the revelation that came in Scripture uh, first came personally. I mean, Yahweh had encounters with uh, Moses and Abraham uh, long before the Torah was written, before the Tanakh. Uh, the Hebrew word for the Old Testament Bible is Tanakh. Torah would be uh, the the law, the first five books of what we Christians would call the Pentateuch, but also in the New Testament, uh, long before the New Testament was ever completed, uh, collected together by the church, uh, Jesus, of course, was teaching and preaching, living, healing, uh, dying and resurrecting, and, and the content of all that would then be what we might say inscripturated. Uh, so we have a literal book, the Bible, that's God's word. It's his special revelation. And I'll come back to that word special revelation in a moment. But that second book is really a figurative book. It's, uh, it's really what I'm doing here and what ch the Christian church has been doing for centuries, and even Jews earlier than that. They're talking about nature as if it's an analogy. Uh, it's like a book. It's a figurative book. It doesn't have a spine or pages, but in many ways, it is like a book. It is, I like to call it, it's like a repository of knowledge. It's like a library, if you will. 
Uh, you can go out into the world and gain knowledge and information, and you can derive wisdom. And of course, uh, that that idea, I think, is a very, very powerful one in terms of kind of Christian apologetics, that the Jewish Christian idea is that the world is intelligible because it comes from the mind of the Creator. And just as we think about learning and studying and reading from a book, well, nature is also an intelligible document. Uh, that comes to us. Now, Now again, it's a lot more than merely a book. Um, when you look at nature, you see beauty, you see power, you see many things uh, in, that, in that created world. But that's basically that idea that there are two books, uh, the figurative book of nature, the literal book of scripture, they come from God, they're written by God, and of course implications theologically and doctrinally come out of this, that if God is the author of bo both books, if he, he is the writer of these books, then we would expect that if we understand these books properly, they will cohere, they will not contradict, they can't contradict if they come from the hand of God. Of course, that leaves open all kinds of other issues, like, well, how do we know we've interpreted either of the books properly? And uh, that's where a lot of debate within Christian history takes place as we kind of understand those kinds of things. Now, I'm going to kind of hold off the idea of looking at some of the great um, statements about the book of nature. You, you find them among Eastern church fathers, you find them among Western church fathers, you also find them in the writings of the Protestants. So in our next program, we'll look at some of uh, that data. But I, I, I think it's kind of good to talk a little bit about uh, this idea of, of exactly how God has revealed himself, because uh, you can kind of think of this in two ways. God has revealed himself in terms of these two two books of Revelation, but but in many ways, it is deeper about how God has kind of conveyed himself. And so the word revelation, and of course, most people, when they think of the word revelation, they think of the final book of the New Testament, which is an apocalyptic book, uh, and of course, is one of the most famous books of the Bible because of its uh, futurism. Uh, again, Christians have interpreted the, the parts of the uh, book of Revelation differently. But here I don't mean that book specifically. I mean God unveiling himself, God disclosing himself. And of course, uh, this is interesting to me because there's a growing idea within secular thought that maybe the biggest argument, maybe the most um, uh a definitive argument or uh, weighty argument against God is that God is hidden. And so I'm going to come back to that idea uh, in a little while. But the general doctrine of revelation is that God is the one who has taken the effort to unveil himself, to disclose himself, to reveal himself. And he's done it in two basic ways. And these two basic ways then fit well with this idea of the two books. Uh, God has unveiled himself 
in dual revelation. The first one would be general revelation. By general, it means that it goes out to all people at all times everywhere. It's everywhere available. Uh, this is a universal revelation. So the pagan nations had this revelation. Uh, the Jewish people had this revelation. All people at all times everywhere. And then the second type of revelation would be special revelation. Instead of general, we'll call it special. Instead of universal, we'll call it particular. Um, why, why would God choose the Hebrews to reveal himself? Uh, he could have revealed himself to the Chinese. He could have revealed himself to the Indians. But in his wisdom, God chose the nation of Israel, the people, the Hebrew people that would later become the nation of Israel to, to receive that special revelation. And, and again, that special revelation would start by Moses and Abraham and all of the Old Testament prophets encountering Yahweh. And then that revelation would be largely inscripturated. And then extending that, um, not only did God pick the Hebrew people, but out of the Hebrew people, he chose a Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus uh, of Nazareth, Jesus the Galilean teacher. Uh, he is the incarnation uh, of, of God, uh, a single person with both a divine and human nature. So that's, that's how those two books come to be. You can think of general revelation in terms of the book of nature, available to all, universal. Then special revelation, well, that would then relate uh, ultimately to uh, a personal revelation, and then that personal revelation comes in terms of a uh, an inscripturated revelation. So that's that's kind of a background mm -hmm. uh, uh, to those kind of ideas. Very good. Okay, let's then uh, let's then talk a little bit about the biblical basis for this idea. I mean, um, there are young Earth creationists who say that the two books idea is not a biblical idea. Well, um, I think it's taught in scripture. I think a powerful place that we find it uh, is in the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 19. Um, I think Psalm 19 teaches both general revelation and special revelation. Uh, it, it teaches us this idea that God has revealed himself in the book of nature and the book of scripture. Uh, so let me, let me touch upon Psalm 19. And here I'm thinking that uh, Psalm 19 verses one through four, that's the book of nature. Verses seven through 11, that's the book of scripture. And let's, let me just touch upon those uh, a bit here. Uh, Psalm 19 verses one through four uh, this is a Davidic psalm, by the way. David wrote maybe half of the psalms. Um, what an extraordinary person David was. But he, he writes here, the heavens declare the glory of God, or the Hebrew conveys the idea, the heavens keep on declaring the glory of God. This is not just something that has been revealed in the past. It's being revealed right now. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where this voice is not heard. 
their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Well, look at the look at those terms that are used there. Uh, day by day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And so already uh, the writer, David, the psalmist, is conveying the idea that God has revealed himself as you would read a book, as if you would hear a voice, as if you would derive knowledge. Uh, it's a language. And here, of course, I think about uh, modern science, where, where scientists will tell you that the language of the universe is written in mathematics. Well, this, this I think, is a powerful argument for God's existence, that the world in which we live is understood uh, by mathematics, by logic. And not only that, but human beings have all the necessary faculties to be able to take in this revelation. And again, the, the revelation can come in, in very powerful ways. Um, God's revelation can also seen in its beauty. Um, you don't have to be a mathematician. You don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be a historian to be able to take in this revelation. All you have to do is, is take in uh, the glory of God uh, by by your faculties. But I think there, uh, in verses one through four, we have a basic idea that God has revealed himself uh, in something that is like a book. Now, you know, to talk about analogies or metaphors for a moment, remember, analogies are never perfect because they're inductive in nature. Uh, an analogy by by its very nature, compares both the similarities and dissimilarities of things. The, the more that things have in common, uh, the stronger the analogy is going to be. If there, if there are relevant ideas in comparing two things, the more they have in common, the stronger that analogy is going to be. If, if, they, if the things that uh, are, if they're more dissimilar than they are similar, then the weaker that analogy is going to be. And so I think the psalmist here is definitely giving this idea uh, that nature uh, is like a book. Now, let me then uh, move to verses 7 through 11, where the, psalm, the psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The, the ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And so here we see a shift to the biblical revelation that God has revealed himself in a, in a literal book, uh, and, and again, we get the idea of statutes or trustworthy, precepts, commands. Uh, I know in my church, regularly in our liturgy, we begin with the Old Testament reading of the law uh, and the recognition that we have failed to fulfill the law. 
And the prayer that, that God would incline our hearts to keep the commandments of God. So I think very clearly, exegetically, we have this idea of two books. And uh, I'll look in, in, in a few minutes in terms of the New Testament. But that's a, that's a very powerful uh, idea. And, and just one more, one more point here, and then we'll open it up for any questions that, that Dave, you, or Joe have. Think of it again as the living word and the written word. Um, not only we have two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, but when we look to the book of scripture, there's the living word. In the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. In the New Testament, that's Christ. The written word, that would be scripture. In the Old Testament, the Tanakh. In the New Testament, we would have uh, the revelation uh, of the person of, of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of a that's kind of a foundation, uh, some principles uh, in terms of Scripture. Joe, Dave, any comments, questions you'd like to ask? Uh, yeah, a question here as you were reading through those verses in Psalm 19. Uh, the thought came to mind, especially in regard to this line, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. We often hear of uh, efforts on the part of uh, organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators and others that their desires to really get God's word out to all people groups and all languages everywhere. Would you say that this psalm is affirming that um, what can be known about God, his attributes and so forth that are spoken about in Romans 1, and I'm probably getting ahead of the game here, would you say that that's, this psalm is affirming that but they still don't have the special revelation uh, that that could be lacking with some people groups. Is that, did you see what I'm getting at yes. there? Yes. No, I think that's fair, Joe. I, I, I think clearly God has revealed himself. And in, in fact, I would, I would put it this way, that, that God's existence, power, wisdom, majesty, righteousness, and glory are manifested to all people at all times in all places, so again, generally available, through the created order, which would include, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, nature, history, the inner human conscience being made in the image of God. So in, in one hand, Joe, people have a knowledge of God. Um, you know, Paul is going to say in Romans 1, the natural tendency because of original sin is to suppress it. But people have a knowledge of God. Now, what they don't have is special revelation. And that were, that would be the place where somebody like a Wycliffe, wanting to translate scripture and make it, make it available uh, to as many people as possible. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's move a little further in our discussion here. This has uh, this has biblical implications. It has theological implications. Um, if you think of relating general revelation and special revelation, I like to say I, I think that we should see them as as a unity. Uh, we can distinguish them, but I don't think that we should separate them. I mean, God, after all, um, He chose to create the world. And, and through creating the world, he imbued that world with, um, with, with logic, with um, 
mathematics, with the knowledge of God. Now, we, we can distinguish these revelations. Uh, I don't think we want to separate them in the sense that um, this kind of gets us back to this idea that if, if God is real, if the Hebrew Christian idea of God is correct, then this book that he, through his Holy Spirit, uh, this literal book that he wrote, and then the world of nature that he has created, uh, they're, going to, they're going to cohere together. And uh, they have a they have a connection, and so we can distinguish the two. Um, I don't think we want to separate the two, and and I think that there is a tendency at times for people to move to one or the other. Um, I think to some degree. Now, I I want to be careful. I want to be accurate. There are times where I think the young Earth creationists um, want to emphasize scripture uh, in a way that they would not emphasize the book of nature. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something else. I think with evolutionary creation, sometimes I think there's a tendency to, to press the book of nature uh, in a way that's different than the book of scripture. Now, now again, that's, uh, that's an observation I'm making. Not everybody necessarily is going to uh, maybe agree with me, but I, I think they have to be kind of uh, held together. Uh, I would also say, I think the two, the two books or the two revelations, they reinforce, they, they complement one another. And I think it's possible to exaggerate general revelation. And I think it's possible to exaggerate special revelation. But what would exaggerating uh, general revelation? Well, I think it's a mistake to think that general revelation can save you. I think to think that what you can see in nature about God, that that in and of itself is salvific, I think that's a mistake. I think that's exaggerating general revelation. Now, how can you exaggerate special revelation? Well, I think to, to take it out of its context. Um, in, in many ways, uh, Jesus is saying, you know, in his teaching, look around you, look at the world that God has made. So we, we understand Jesus and uh, who he is in relationship to Yahweh within the context of, of the world that he's made. And so I think we have to handle both of these books carefully. Uh, and they both of them should should receive their due, so to speak. The thing that struck me, too, in Paul's statements in Romans 1, is that man, the natural man, seeing this uh, general revelation is without excuse. Absolutely, yeah. Let's talk about that, Dave and Joe. Um, you know, when we go to the New Testament, we see Paul in Romans 1 and 2, he says that people see and they understand and that they know that there's a God. Uh, uses those specific terms, see, understand, and know, um, that we have a conscience. Um, you know, that, that's part of the difficulty of relating to God. That's part of the challenge of people coming to know God or doubting God or questioning God. Um, 
you have to come to God on moral terms. You can't come to God on your terms. You have to come to God on his terms, and he's a moral being. Now, the backdrop of all of this, of course, is that we're made in the image of God. Because we're made in the image of God, I would say we're worshipers. Because we're made in the image of God, we're lovers. And when that that relationship with God is torn, uh, when it's blocked, if you will, we don't stop worshiping and loving. Rather, we attach ourselves to temporal things. Um, and so being a worshiper and being separated from God, I think it will inevitably lead to idolatry. And, and I, th I think it's interesting to me that secular people that I have spoken with who categorically say they don't believe God exists, nevertheless, have usually have some big picture issue that they care about, environmentalism, politics. Uh, and, and of course, I think the human condition is that we don't stop being lovers when we're separated from God. But what happens is our loves are disordered. And so uh, sexuality is one of the great things uh, of, of the human experience. And yet, what do people do to sexuality? Uh, often they distort it, or they expect more out of it that than it could possibly produce. Um, I, you know, I think of, of food, a good thing, like sex, a good thing. But what, what do people do to it? Um, that, that fallenness, that we're, we're without excuse. And so general revelation holds us accountable for our belief in God. Um, and yet, and yet without grace, and yet without God's special revelation, uh, people are largely uh, just held accountable in that context. Now, let me talk a, a little bit about how I think we, we have access to God um, being made in the image of God means that we're in a category of being that is different than, than the rest of nature. We're, we're made in the image of God. Now, we're finite. We're limited. Um, we have boundaries. God, on the other hand, has no boundaries, no limitations. God is infinite, eternal. We're temporal and finite. And yet, because we're made in the image of God, we can worship. Because we're made in the image of God, we can be held morally accountable. Because we're made in the image of God, we can think, we can reason. All of those kind of classical qualities and characteristics. So we're made in the image of God. We have an awareness of God when it comes to our conscience within we can look at nature and we can draw reasonable inferences. Um, I mean, I think if you pushed me and said, well, Ken, what's your fundamental reason for believing in God and believing in the truth of Christianity? I think I would simply say that God is the best explanation. That is, God is an inference to the best explanation of reality, including my own human experience. Um, and and think think of think of the teleological implications of all of this, that the world is like a book. Well, have you ever seen a book without an author? 
Have, have you ever seen, uh, you know, where do you find books? In a library, in, in a world of thought, in a repository of knowledge. And, and could I say again, it is started, startling to me at times, although I understand the nature of human condition, it startles me at times that people can be so deeply educated have a have a mastery maybe of mathematics or physics or philosophy or literature and then look at the book of nature and say yeah it's it's an incredible reality but it all comes with no mind with no rationality behind it no personhood behind it i i think this two books idea is it's, it's very exciting to me because it it reinforces my love of books. It tells me that, uh, Ken, you're a bookish person because that's the way God made you. And it, it also tells me that uh, people who love nature, they're bookish. It's a different kind of bookishness, but it's it's still part of, of that reality. Now, um, of course, what do people do? when they encounter that natural revelation, when they encounter that general revelation, what what is the tendency? Well, a, another explanatory part of the Christian worldview or the biblical worldview, if you want to speak of it in those terms, is the fall. I mean, again, think of the Christian worldview in, in terms of four successive events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. In that kind of context, God created the world, but something's gone wrong. Something has happened that has uh, re deeply affected human beings uh, in their relationship with God, in their relationship with each other, in their relationship with their own selves. And uh, that has, of course, led to uh, you know, human beings being separated from God. I don't know about a lot of other people. I personally think a very powerful uh, part of Christian explanation comes in in another discipline, and it's called psychology. How how do we how do we understand the the suke right? How do we understand the soulishness of human beings? And, and here, I think Christianity has had a lot of influence in psychology because Christians and Jews have always believed that there's an inner you. There's the outer you, but then there's the inner you. And that outer and inner somehow have to come together. And I, I think to speak in kind of existential terms, something has warped us. Something has affected us. Um, I like what Augustine and then later Luther, uh, we've been curved in back on upon ourselves, And I think it's reasonable to conclude that if a philosophy or a worldview or a religion could adequately explain the human condition, then they're very likely going to be true. Human beings are really hard to figure out. Uh, we, we, we try to do it with psychology, we try to do it with law enforcement, we try to do it with philosophy, we try to do it with the Bible. Human beings are an enigma. 
But if the Bible, I think, can give us a true description, and again, here I'm falling back on somebody I like very much, Blaise Pascal. Pascal says that we're that human beings are an enigma of greatness and wretchedness. Greatness, uh, Mortimer Adler would say, for example, uh, human beings have qualities of thought, qualities of speech that the animals cannot attain, nor can the machines attain it. Adler thought the human condition, the, the human capacity to to think, to speak, to write, to read, that could never be duplicated by neither the animals nor uh, the machines. Although, of course, some machines are pretty sophisticated because they're created by intelligent people. Mm -hmm. But again, coming back to Pascal's idea, greatness, um, you know, animals are not going to be able to create nuclear weapons. Fallen human beings want to use those weapons this greatness and, and wretchedness. And I think we see it in other people. I think we see it in ourselves, that uh, there is something about us that transcends the other creatures on the planet. And yet there's also this moral breakdown. And uh, I think that's a very powerful thing. And, and it's, of course, it's hard to balance general revelation because on one hand, general revelation gives you the knowledge of God. On the other hand, the fallenness, you push back on it. Ken, um, as you've been explaining uh, uh, what we're talking about, it occurred to me that it seems like we have an example of the both revelations in action. And I'd like to get your comment on it. Uh, it's somewhere in the book of Acts. Paul's on one of his missionary journeys. I think it's Athens, where he comes across... Um, a people group that has an altar to an unknown God. And then he says, what you are worshiping in ignorance, I'm here to proclaim to you. And then he goes on to, you know, uh, give scriptural background and points to Christ and all of that. So it seems like you have both of them there together. I wanted to get your comment on that. I think that's right. I, I think that's, that's the way I interpret it as well, that the apostle Paul uh, encounters this group of people. It, it is in Athens, the the heart of philosophy, that the the place where uh, that produced Plato and Socrates and, and Aristotle. And uh, I like what I like what Luke says about them. They 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 spend all day thinking and and enjoying ideas. And I think to myself, they're philosophers. Uh, and. And yet they, they are open to this idea that, hey, we, we've got all of these Greco-Roman gods. Maybe there's a god we, we don't yet know. Maybe there's a god lurking out there. And Paul comes along and says, look, I want to put these two books together for you. Uh, I want to talk about this intuition you have that there is a god. And then I want to tell you how this god has revealed himself in a special way uh, through the person of, of Jesus Christ. And Paul interestingly says, even your own prophets, Paul starts quoting pagan prophets, hmm. which I think indicates, Joe, that uh, the pagans get some things right. Now, they get a lot of things wrong. Uh, I don't, I don't want to praise paganism per se. They, uh, 
they had many immoralities and they worshiped, went running after many gods. And yet I think it's a mistake to think that they, they didn't, they didn't have an, an accountability. That is, they had an intuition there was a God. Um, and they, they also recognized that somehow they needed to be in connection with this God. Um, and that's what I say about the world's religions today. I mean, when I teach uh, comparative religions at Biola University, sometimes the students assume they come in assuming the idea everything in all the world's religions are wrong. I say, well, why would you why would you think that? Aren't every isn't everybody made in the image of God? Don't all of us aren't we all recipients of common grace? Uh, they're going to get things right. Well, it's, it's the extent to which they can make observations and then it make interpretations of those observations. And their interpretations are often wrong, but some of their observations are correct. That's right. And that's a complicated state of affairs, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, there's that, that aha kind of experience. I, I remember I was hiking up a hill in, in Riverside and uh, when I was hiking down, there was a guy with his uh, with his phone. I think it's intriguing to me that people's phones, they use them for almost everything other than kind of talking to people anymore. <laughs> he, he was taking a picture of the setting sun. And Dave, you know, when the sun sets, there's a lot of red and beauty. Right. And it, it looks mysterious and attractive all at the same time. And, you know, I kind of said to him, uh, you know, as I walked by, I said, wow, a lot of beauty there. And he, he grunted something. I, I don't think he was paying attention to me. He was, you know, focusing on this sun. But the way you've described it, I think, is right, that there is a, there is a need. The pagans don't have any lack of awareness but when it gets into the interpretation and when it gets into, okay, now what is my relationship to that God? That's where it becomes convoluted. And, um, and of course, again, though, the Bible says that. The Bible says that there is this, an awareness of God, and yet also uh, a desire to suppress the knowledge or to explain it away. I, I thought we could talk a little bit about uh, how how Christians uh, today kind of stack up in terms of how they look at these these two books. And so I want to talk a little bit about young earth creationism, and I want to talk about evolutionary creationism, and then I want to talk about what RTB represents as old earth creationism and 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 again i i think what's what's important here is i think that all of these christian groups whether they be oriented toward a young earth or whether they be oriented toward uh, the idea that god used evolution or kind of the middle view of rtb where there is the affirmation of the age of the earth being old, and yet the idea that God didn't intervene in evolutionary terms, but more special terms. Uh, 
I, I think it's kind of important to appreciate that uh, that even there, Christians have differing ideas. And uh, sometimes it is challenging to know exactly, well, how does that literal book relate to that figurative book? And what is the inner relationship of the two? Uh, I take the position of biblical inerrancy. That's the view of RTB. That's the view of many evangelical Protestant Christians today. Uh, but how does the figurative book of nature impact my interpretation of Scripture? I, I don't think that the figurative book, the book of nature, could, could ever correct Scripture. I mean, Scripture is different. It comes in propositional uh, terms, words communicated directly. Scientists, other people who operate in the world, historians, philosophers, they have to kind of take that revelation and study it and analyze it, and then hopefully draw out proper inferences from it. But how would the book of nature, I mean, it seems that the book of nature might indicate that maybe it's possible we're misunderstanding the book of scripture. And you have the whole Galileo um, issue in church history. Um, you know, where is the earth? Is, is the earth at the center or is the sun at the center? Um, and then, of course, when you look a little further into this, it's really not the Bible teaching that the earth is at the center. This kind of comes out of the context of Aristotle, which the church kind of baptized. And so Christians... Uh, are tempted at times to give in interpretative views uh, more authority than, than maybe they should. But let's talk a little bit about uh, these three groups, old earth, young earth, evolutionary creation. Um, I know a lot of Christians are young earth creationists. Um, they, they look at scripture and... Um, they say, look, uh, if I add up the genealogies, I get roughly six to 10,000 years. Um, and now scientists tell us that it's a lot older than that. Well, which one am I, which one am I going to believe? Um, am I going to believe in a young earth, which I think, you know, they view as, uh, as teaching uh, just a few thousand years versus uh, long ages, uh, you know, the earth four and a half billion years old, the universe 13, 14 billion years. How do, how do they handle those kinds of things? Well, in many ways, they say, look, we think the scientists are wrong. Um, and if you look closer, you could see uh, images of, of a young earth evident even in the natural world. Now, that's very hard for scientists who are not young earthers to, to see any kind of legitimacy, but, but young earthers believe the earth is six to 10,000 years old. There's no evolution. God created Adam directly. Uh, and when they open the book of Genesis, the creation days are six 24-hour periods. Um, I, th this is called the calendar day view. Um, that, that calendar day view, though, if I could respectfully challenge it for a moment, 
I'm not sure you have a coherent idea of what a day is in a calendar day view. Seems like days one through three are earth rotation days, and then day four through six are solar days, and then day seven is something I don't even understand. So does the calendar day have a coherent idea of days? I don't think so. And I say that with all due respect. I understand how a person may come to that view, but I think that it has some of its challenges. Now let's talk a bit about evolutionary creationism. Uh, by the way, I should add, there have been a number of people who have represented a young earth view. Um, uh, you know, today Ken Ham is, is probably the name that comes to the mind of many people. Uh, but there have been a number of people in the 19th and 20th century uh, who've held that view. I remember when I first started looking into these topics, Henry Morris was a very outspoken um, uh, young earth creationist. Uh, and there have been a number of, of people in that context. And, and if, you, if I might say as a friendly critic, and I like to think I'm both, both friendly and a critic. Um, I think some young earthers are more careful and more reflective and more generous than others. Uh, you could say the same thing about old earth creationists or evolutionary creationists. Some are more thoughtful, some are more generous, some are more reflective, some are less reflective, less generous, uh, all of those kinds of things. How about evolutionary creationists? Well, they typically take, I, I think theologically, the, the evolutionary creationists or theistic evolutionists largely take a more framework view of, of Genesis. Uh, that is that it's, it's less about science and more about theology. Uh, they, of course, interpret the Bible more topically, uh, more theologically. And of course, evolutionary creationists or theistic evolutionists, they believe the earth is four and a half billion years old. They believe that God created through evolution. Um, I, I have to say, and I'm, I'm certainly not a scientist or an engineer, I just made it through getting the best math grades I could get to, to go on to study other things that I was interested in. But the idea that God would have created or front-loaded the creation in such a way that it would sequentially unfold, that, that seems like a very powerful idea. I could see how many people would be attracted uh, to that idea. Now, now again, um, just as you have some differentiation within the young earth view, I think you probably have more in the evolutionary creationist view. I have talked with some evolutionary creationists that I think genuinely believe in a historical Adam. I've talked to others where I have doubts whether they believe in a historical Adam at all. And one of the challenges I think you have from an evolutionary creationist point of view is, who are you talking to? Some evolutionary creationists, I think, are a bit more conservative. Some... Um, some, I think, want to, they hold a view that I'm not sure they can really square with historic Christianity. 
Now, um, there, of course, have been theistic evolutionists for a very long time. Uh, Francis Collins is probably the biggest name. Uh, not only was he the head of the National Institute of Health um, under Obama uh, and Trump in the in Obama and Trump administrations, but he um, he founded the organization BioLogos. And there are many Christians um, who believe that this is the proper interpretation. Uh, I think of two very significant uh, thinkers in Britain, um, N.T. Wright, the uh, world-class New Testament scholar, historian of Christianity, and I think of Alistair McGrath at Oxford University, both in kind of the theistic evolution, evolutionary creationist point of view. Uh, again, that's not our cup of tea at RTB. Um, we, um, we think the, the explanation of how God created human beings is much less certain, I think, than, than some evolutionary creationists do. I remember when I had the pleasure and the honor to meet Francis Collins, I said, how sure are you of evolution? Of evolution? He says, as sure as gravity. Hmm. And I, I, uh, my mouth probably just dropped at that point. I was, uh, I was a bit surprised by that, but there are a lot of thoughtful, reflective people uh, who hold the evolutionary creationist viewpoint. Now the middle position, um, I don't know why I put it in the middle. Um, actually, I do know why I put it in the middle. I, I think in some sense, it is kind of a middle view. Um, in some sense, I think the old earth view um, in the old days, we call it progressive creationism, old earth creationism. Um, just as I've mentioned leaders, I put Hugh Ross right there. Uh, I think Hugh is, in many respects, one of the most important uh, conservative Christians writing in the field of science and faith today. Um, now, uh, Fuzrana has taken the mantle as uh, the president of reasons to believe. The, the old earth view would be that uh, the earth is the earth is again uh, an old earth, four and a half billion years old. Uh, the universe, 13 point something uh, in terms of how old it is. I'll let Hugh, I, I, I was teasing Hugh, I was teasing Hugh's class. I had the pleasure and the honor of speaking to Hugh's class a few weeks ago. And uh, Hugh, when he does the mic check, would add numbers of pi. So I, I quoted the, the retired uh, Hall of Fame uniforms for the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to be outdone. So I, mm. I, had, I had to come up with some numbers that I remember. Well, anyway, um, the old earth view um, that, that when we look at the book of Genesis, these are long ages. Uh, there have been Christian thinkers through the centuries. I, I think of Augustine, uh, who I study very closely. Augustine said, when he looked at the creation days, he says, these are not days like I understand. Well, he, there wasn't a scientific community at that point, or if there was, it was very limited. But Augustine looked at the literature of the book of Genesis, and he says, these aren't days like I would normally understand days. Uh, 
Uh, Augustine even took the view that God created everything instantaneously. And then that initial creation then kind of unfolded. Well, that's that's one way of looking at it. Uh, of course, uh, Hugh Ross has been very influential in setting forth the day-age view that the, the uh, days in, in the creation accounts of Genesis 1, that they're long ages, they're epochs. There are other interpretations among old earth creationists. Some would have an analogical interpretation, I think, there of people like Jack Collins, Vern Poitras. Um, I, I even asked both of those gentlemen who were recently at an RTB workshop, I said, I think that the old earth view, I, I think that the day age view, the analogical days um, and the framework view that they're sister schools of interpretation. Uh, both of them agreed with that. Uh, I, I, found that I found that quite interesting. Um, and so you have differing interpretations. Now, um, what, what would I say about, what would I say about all of this? Um, you know, sometimes people come to me and they say, Ken, why, why doesn't God just have everything nailed down? Why do you have to have four view books? <laughs> why not just one view book, God's view, right? Uh, well, that's a good, I think that's a good question. Um, there are times where I think, why, why, isn't, why aren't certain things more clear? Um, I think part of it, I think part of it is that God wants us to think and to reason and to study and to reflect. <clears throat> that, as I think part of it can mature us, I think part of it also is, it is our brokenness and our fallenness. Uh, and our, it, it, and if I could say, I think it's also our finitude. Um, I, I, sometimes I think people attribute to our sinfulness things that I think are really true of our finitude. We have limitations. We have boundaries. We, now, we have a lot of imperfections that go along with that for the fall. But as creatures, there are things we don't know. And I, I think part of the divisions and the debates come through differing ideas. Now, what I want to say in the context of all of this is um, I, I, have a, I have a suggestion. And I, and I make it for the young earth creationists, the old earth creationists, and the evolutionary creationists. I think we, I think we need to think about three things, truth, unity, and charity. Now, it has to start with truth. I'm not suggesting anybody do anything other than discover the truth. And once you find it, you hold on to it tenaciously. Um, you know, Jude, uh, the biblical author, uh, he says we need to contend for the faith. We need to embrace the truth. But I think that the way that we need to embrace the truth is I think we also need to realize that the, uni the unity of the body of Christ is also a value that is very important to uphold. Um, sometimes in that community of, of faith and science, um, we speak in very harsh ways to each other. Mm. Um, unity, 
I think is important. I well, the way I think about it is I often think, what do non-Christians think of all this? Now, charity, um, charity is a challenge. I, when I when I read through First Corinthians thirteen, um, and Paul says things like, "You could understand all mysteries, but without love, you're nothing." Now, I, I think Paul. I don't think Paul there is being literal. I think he's he's using hyperbole because none of us could ever understand all mysteries. But I think he's making a point, and that is, if even if we could, even if we could understand God as God understands Himself, if we don't act in love, we're nothing. And you know that's a that's a very powerful thing. I mean, uh, if if I could be candid. It, to me, the ideas are the easy part. Uh, that's the fun part. The fun part is debating and holding differing ideas and working through those things. The harder part is to say, look, um, I may have to admit that I need to be more humble. I, I, I may have to um, be more patient with other people in their their viewpoints. Uh, you know, love. What is love? Uh, patience, kindness. Um, I think of the fruit of the spirit. Um, you know, these are these are very important. And so, I think uh, I don't know how I don't know if any of these things are going to be resolved in my lifetime. But I my my humble suggestion is that I think we need truth, unity, and charity uh, in, in all of these particular areas. And I think especially for those of us who care very much about reaching non-Christian people, mm -hmm. uh, I think in some respects, um, a thoughtful non-Christian might say, do I want to be like those particular people? Um, I'd like to add another explanation. I'm not saying that what you're suggesting, uh, why God doesn't reveal as much as we would like, is wrong. Uh, I think there's multiple reasons. But I think one reason is that God uh, has provided an environment where we can in, be involved in discovery. I think that, you know, the, the scientific world and profession is a is a, a field of discovery and i think that it works to the degree effectively when they have the characteristics that you described of unity and truth and charity and i think it works in the sense that the natural world of scientists do have a certain level of respect for one another they acknowledge one another's abilities to interpret and understand. Uh, they invite uh, criticism. We have referees. Whenever you publish a paper, it's refereed by other scientists and you take their criticisms into account. The problem is, is that in the area of theology, we don't often do that. We don't have that kind of respect and that level of, of uh, desire for uh, you know, loving and charity and and 
and of course truth and, and unity and harmony and that creates a lot of problems i think that's where the sin nature comes in maybe to an even greater degree but if we were to practice the kind of uh, a process that is present in the scientific community i think we would have much more opportunity for discovery that god i think provides he doesn't give us all the information but he gives us little tidbits and and invites us to uh, work towards trying to discover uh, what it is that he's teaching and what it is that he's revealing. I, I think that that's true. And, and I, I, the way I would incorporate that into what I said, Dave, is I think that this process of discovery is both for the intellect and for the mind, but also for the soul. It's to mature yeah. us. Absolutely. It's to help us to grow in not only our moral virtues, but our intellectual virtues. Yes, yes. And I, I, I think you're right. I, I think that I think science has established a way of operating an enterprise that when it's when it is followed uh, is is a very powerful way of discovering uh, knowledge about uh, the natural world. Now, uh, of course, there are people in the scientific community that they can be as difficult as people in in the theological areas as well. But I, I think we know that as as part of the of the human condition. Yes. Now, what I want to say in in the context of all of this is um, that I think that this is very powerful and and very intriguing and and. I, I think one of the things that attracts me to my faith as a Christian is again this two books model. Um, I've told the story many times, and I'll 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 tell it quickly because I know our time is is uh, passing. Uh, I only had one time I think in my life where I had a a deep uh, time where I I wondered whether my faith was true. Now, don't get me wrong; I have doubts. Uh, I'm kind of a hypocrite. I wrote a book without a doubt, but I do have doubts. Uh, but I wanted to call it thinking and believing, but Baker Books said, no, we want without a doubt. So, so they, they, had, uh, they had the power, right, to, to title the book. I, I remember being a, in college, um, taking philosophy courses. I had uh, left the Catholic Church, which was uh, part of my early life, and I had begun attending an evangelical church. And uh, the people at the church, they're very sincere, they're very godly people, very caring, uh, but there was kind of an anti-intellectualism in the church. Um, the pastor told me, he said, Ken, I, I think one of the problems you have is you think too much. Now, I wanted to say back to him, well, maybe you don't have that problem, but I didn't say that. I, <laughs> I thought it, but I didn't say it. Um, but he, here's the context. Um at the church I was attending, we never talked about reason. We never talked about rationality. We didn't talk about the laws of logic. Um, at school, it was I was attending, I had very secular classes. We never talked about faith. We talked about reason and rationality. And there was a suspicion, I think, of, of religion in many of the courses that I took. And I thought to myself one day, I remember I was working at... Uh, it's working at Toys R Us. It's one of my early jobs. Uh, 
I remember I was making uh, $2.10 an hour, something like that. It was, uh, I was not overpaid, let me tell you. But I, I remember one day I was shagging carts. I had to go out into the uh, the parking lot and collect all the carts. Uh, it was Christmas time. People are buying their toys. And uh, I miss Toys R Us. I, I think that was a great store. Anyway, I was out in, out there and I thought to myself, I remember I, I prayed a prayer. I said, Lord, I don't feel like I fit in. I said, at, at, at church, we don't talk about reason. At school, we don't talk about faith. I'm a man of faith and reason, and I don't seem to have a place to fit. And I thought, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not meant to be a Christian. That's a, painful, that's a painful thought to run through you, and I was very sincere. Uh, fortunately, I, I had a, a Christian who was one of my philosophy teachers. He says, Ken, you need to read St. Augustine. Start there. Start reading some of the great Christian thinkers. Um, that is the birthplace of my book, Classic Christian Thinkers. I wrote that book for maybe people who are like me, who are wondering, how do I fit in a world of reason and in a world of faith? Very good. All right, Ken, you're going to talk about this some more in another podcast, right? I am. In, in fact, um, we did a workshop at Reasons to Believe uh, a number of weeks ago, a number of months ago, and I gave a talk where I talked about uh, kind of the historical nature of these two books. So I want to share with you some of the quotations that I was able to discover, and we'll, we'll return to this issue next time. All right. Very good. Thank you for that. In the meantime, let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle, at RTB underscore K samples. And don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. Uh, subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. Uh, Ken, some people have been uh, writing in. They found you either on Facebook or Twitter, and they've been reading your book. So here are a couple of uh, notes to pass along and to thank people for uh, reaching out. Here's one says, Dear Ken, I'm glad to have come across your book without a doubt in one of the bookstores here in Malawi. I'm planning to buy it before I relocate to another city. I sure am going to enjoy the book. Lots of love from Malawi, Africa. Joseph Zafnath Pania. I had, Joe, I had no idea when I wrote that book that it would make its way to Malawi, Africa. I don't even know where that is, <laughs> but we're, we're grateful to receive that letter. Thank you, uh, Joseph. And here's another one. Uh, Dear Ken, I first discovered two of your books, Without a Doubt and Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, at Hanju International Christian Fellowship in Hanju, China, if I'm saying that right. Wow. The fellowship met in the sanctuary of a Chinese congregation's building. Our fellowship had a small selection of English Christian books, and your two were there. While in Hanju, I was hired to teach apologetics at Crean Lutheran High School, which I guess he's now uh, talking about uh, back in California. It was a brand, brand new class, and I could write the curriculum. I chose without a doubt as the primary textbook, and I started with chapter 20 and then went to the middle chapters, 
for the resurrection before then going to the first chapters and then the final section as the outline for the course. The head theology teacher then was the wife of Marty Schramm, whom you thanked or recognized in the book. That connection meant my selection got greenlit without any holdups. It also meant I could easily begin to prep for the class while in China. Since 2009, at least 1,000, but probably closer to 2,000 copies have been used by high school students in Orange County, California. Andy Rasman. Wow, that's quite a letter, Kent. To God alone the glory. Wow. The, I, again, when I wrote that book, the idea that it would show up in China and in Africa, it's just hard to believe. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thanks for writing in. We sure appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, for Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening. and Join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.